The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking, of course, about the midterm elections. With less than two weeks until Election Day, recent polls show pivotal races getting tighter and tighter for Democrats across the country. Lots of fears that the Democrats are going to wildly shit the bed. For today's discussion, I'm going to be joined by MSNBC host Chris Hayes. I spoke with Chris about all things midterms, the good, the bad, the encouraging, and the terrifying. Then I'm going to be speaking with journalist and author Anand Jirad Haradas about his new book, The Persuaders. There's a lot of sound and fury in the world right now, a lot of noise, but not a lot of persuading. I spoke with Anand about the power and necessity of persuasion in today's hyper-polarized political environment and what it actually takes to change someone's mind and win them to your cause. This week, also, our paid subscribers will get a bonus segment, which is the extended conversation I had with Anand. We ended up talking for almost an hour and had a really, really good discussion. I mean, we went really, really deep. Make sure to check it out. If you want access to Lever Time Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, do us a favor. Share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. As always, I'm joined today by producer Frank. What's up, Frank? Not much, David. Uh, I'm feeling a little nervous. I'm feeling a little anxious. You know, we got these big midterm elections coming up, and you know, normally this is around the time that all of the corporate media starts putting out their stories of like, oh, you know, it's all going to be bad. Everything's going to be terrible because they need, you know, they need conflict to report on. But uh, I feel like this cycle, we're seeing a bunch of quantitative data that is showing us that this might actually not be a good year for Democrats. I mean, it seems pretty bad. It's a party that has, up until this point, not really campaigned on the economy or economic issues in the middle of an economic crisis. Uh, and I think the potential for bedshitting is very high. And I think we all have to acknowledge that. I don't think that's automatically what's going to happen, but I definitely think the potential for it is very real. And look, if you've listened to this podcast, if you've read The Lever, if you know my work over decades, one of the things that I've been saying, we've been saying for months and months, really years, is that you can't expect to economically pulverize people and then have an election, try to avoid the economy and expect that things are going to go well. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's not me that created the notion of, quote, it's the economy, stupid. That was the Democratic Party back in the Clinton era, right? So it's incredible that the Democrats, it seems, have kind of, at least up until this point, forgotten that lesson. Now, before we get to our first interview, I just want to say there is something that I'm very excited about personally, 
And I just want to let everybody know because what you're listening to right now, this is a safe space here for Phillies fans. Uh, I grew up uh, in Philadelphia, as most most of you, many of you know. I am a huge Philadelphia fan, generally, of the city, of the place. You can take the boy out of Philadelphia. You can't take the heart out of Philadelphia. I live in Denver. And so the Phillies being in the World Series, I mean, I am super psyched. I'm not that huge a sports fan anymore, but come on. This is a safe space for Phillies fans. I hope everybody listening is cheering on the Phillies. And I mean, like if you're rooting for the for the Houston Astros, like what are you doing with your life? Like seriously, what are you doing with your life? Frank, are you into this stuff? Oh, not at all. Not in the, not in the slightest. I I spend zero of my time on professional sports, but I am from New Jersey, so by sheer proximity, there you go. I adjacency. Am, sheer yes, adjacency. By sheer adjacency. I am supportive of the Phillies. <laughs> Fuck the Astros. Um, absolutely not. There's actually a really great video uh, going around of Ted Cruz at one of the of the series game. Very enjoyable. And and the audience just telling him to go fuck himself. It is I highly recommend. Yes, he was at the. I think he was at the Astros Yankees game. And by the way, one last thing. My my son and I pulled out my old baseball card collection. It was like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they find the Ark and they're like pulling it out. They're like uncovering it from like thousands of years ago. My son and I pulled out this old unsealed uh, box of baseball cards and I found my 1974 Mike Schmidt card. Mike Schmidt, of course, also one one other point to make. Mike Schmidt, the greatest third baseman of all time. And if you have a problem with me saying that, if you think that another third baseman is better than Mike Schmidt, uh, sorry, you're just wrong. Mike Schmidt was the greatest third baseman of all time. So I found my 1974 card and my son and I had a great, like almost like cliched classic father-son experience getting ready for the World Series. All right, that's it for wow. sports talk. I, I don't know what any of this means, but it sounds very important to you and I'm yes. very excited for you yes. and your son. It was really great. We also, I also showed him my autographed 1986 uh, sneakers from Charles Barkley that Charles Barkley gave me as a child after a game. I swear to God that happened. I swear to God I have those sneakers. And by the way, those sneakers were the subject of an episode on ABC's The Goldberg. No joke. Uh, The Goldbergs. No joke. Anyway, all of that sports stuff aside, I know there are some people who are listening who are like, so annoying that you're talking about sports. I'm here for the politics. I get it. Yeah, me. I get it. I know. Like, <laughs> Right. Producer Frank is your proxy. So we're going to get to the politics right now. For the first half of today's show, we're going to be talking about the midterm elections. Now, look, we here at The Lever don't usually parrot the talking points of the Democratic establishment. Actually, I shouldn't even say usually. We do not parrot the talking points of the Democratic establishment. But I think it is safe to say that this year's midterm elections are actually some of the most important elections of our lifetime. I think that's actually true. Six high-profile Senate races will decide control of the upper chamber and whether or not President Biden will become effectively a lame duck president, potentially for the second half of his first term. State legislatures and attorneys general races will most likely determine the fate of abortion rights and abortion access across the country. And secretaries of state races could potentially end with pro-Trump election deniers overseeing elections in pivotal swing states during the 2024 presidential election which could lead to a full-blown constitutional crisis. 
I think those are all facts. Those are not just like Democratic Party talking points. I frankly think the Democratic Party elites have focused specifically on democracy and voting rights arguments uh, and arguments about reproductive rights, all important arguments, but they have focused so obsessively on those arguments uh, and ignored economic arguments that it is difficult for folks to hear those arguments because the economic crisis is so bad. And I think there is a strategic problem with that, but I also think there is still some time left. And that leads into uh, my discussion uh, with MSNBC host Chris Hayes. Uh, I've known Chris for many, many years, going back to the, to the years that we used to work at In These Times magazine. I spoke with Chris about the stakes for this year's midterm elections, the responsibility of the media in covering unprecedented threats to democracy, also the responsibility of the media to cover economic issues in a way that centers workers, something that the media often doesn't do. And I also talked to him about what it's like being the lead anchor of one of the country's largest cable news networks. What are the pressures like? What is What are the bosses saying? Uh, what kind of, of demands are being made? I've come to this revelation that anybody who is not going completely insane right now is like a hero. Like seriously, yeah, like yeah, yeah. climate apocalypse, like election apocalypse, like inflation, like the pandemic yep. is still going on. Like anybody who's like sort of keeping it together, like you are a fucking hero if you're sort of keeping it together. And actually yeah. having this revelation makes me like less mad at, at like little things like, oh, okay, look, that per that person's just like, they're barely keeping it together. But you know what? Everyone's barely keeping it together. I don't know if you feel that way. I feel that way. I mean, I, I definitely like, it's the most cliche thing in the world, but the serenity prayer is really key to me. Like, what can I control? What can I not? Because I think sometimes you end up in this position where it's like, it, it's up to me, you know, I, I take the, the job I have very seriously. It's like, I have to like save American democracy. And it's like, I can't, I can't control any outcomes. I can't control any outcomes. I could do good work. I could focus on what I can control, but if I try to focus on things outside my control, I will go insane. And so I really try not to, but it's very tempting to be drawn into worrying about things you can't control. I cannot control most of the things that I worry about. And I just try to keep retelling myself that because it's the only way that I can stay sane. But yes, the, the pull is very strong not to stay sane. Right. And the other thing is, is that knowing that you can't control those things is an insanity creator when the things you can't control are like super terrifying and scary, like, you know, like climate apocalypse and fascism and like, I mean, like, yes, like those, I, two. <laughs> those are the top of the, those are the top of the list. <laughs> right. So it's, it's kind of like insane creating to know you can't control it. I mean, I kind of use it for the climate. I kind of use the metaphor. We're on, I mean, it's not even a metaphor. It's actually true. We're on a spaceship. The life support system is burning. Lots of us know the life support system is burning. Yeah. The people in the cockpit of the spaceship in large part have decided to bar the door closed and allow <laughs> the life support system to burn. Yes. And you're like, yo, we're, we're all on the spaceship here. What like, and it's amazing that you can be on the spaceship knowing that's happening and remain, you know, mildly sane. Uh, and it goes for inflation and it goes for the election. So let's get right into the into the election. Let's just get right into that. Um, yeah. 
We reported here at The Lever that Republicans have spent $44 million on TV ads focused on the economy and inflation since Labor Day. During the same time, Democrats only spent about $12 million on ads focused on the economy, less than 7% of the party's total. Why do you think up until now, Democrats have not been talking as aggressively about the economy, even when it's statistically, according to the same polls, the most important issue to voters? I mean, I think there's two reasons, right? One is that there's always this question of what the issue space is going to be and how much you can define it. So I do think that like, I think it was a perfectly reasonable and I think effective for a while tactical decision after Dobbs to be like, look, we just got handed an issue that we own 6535 <laughs> in an environment where we didn't have this and also that we're, we care about. We should take advantage of this because if you're the party in power... And 8% on inflation, you're, it's an uphill battle, right? So you have to tell some kind of story. And I think some people have. And I think actually the stuff that Biden's been doing about the fact that like they will cut Social Security and Medicare and want to do that and are announcing it ahead of time, um, I think they probably should have focused on that earlier. But I always think it's this tricky thing where it's like, it's not just what your message is. It's what issue are you bringing attention to at a given moment? And when you're the incumbent party, and again, no, this is the this is the brilliance of running an opposition campaign when inflation's eight percent. You don't have to do anything or say anything or have any solution. Like literally, Todd Young, <laughs> the senator from Indiana, like just has a picture of him at night, like filling up a his car isn't even in the frame. He's like at a gas station. He's like four dollar gas. It's like it's like that's, that's it. it. That's like literally the sum of the message. Right. And by the way, the, the response should be like, dude, why aren't you talking to your oil donors about this? And I think, look, I, I do think I do think the kind of populist message on this stuff and the stuff that I think Katie Porter has trotted out and Elizabeth Warren, which is like there's price gouging, there's profits going to the top. Even if I think like as a macroeconomic analysis, there's like arguments to be had about how much that's the driving factor. At a political level, you got to give someone, you got to give people something. The other thing I'll say that's like really depressing to me, and it's something I've really changed my mind about. I don't, you don't get any credit for stuff that you did. You just don't. And I, and again, like I've just come around entirely on this. You do stuff because it's good for a few reasons. You do stuff because you deliver stuff because you believe in it. It also builds longer term, durable political benefits, right? Like, you see how hard it is to take away the ACA. You see how Medicaid expansion. You, you'll see how hard it will be to to claw back the student debt stuff, right? So that, in a broader political sense, all that stuff is good. It's good policy and good politics. In the narrow sense of like, does it help you win the election? I don't think it does. Like, I just think that stuff like basically comes out in the wash. People are focused on their problems. Understandably, that's how democracy works. And so, you know, I saw this great write-up in Politico where they were like talking about like some pollster like testing like messages on like, here's all we accomplished. And it was like the lowest testing message. People were like, I do not want to hear it. And I, I don't blame them for not wanting to hear it. It's like, it sucks when things, prices go up 8% and rent particularly is like through the roof. So I totally get that. But I do think it's a difficult terrain to message in. To come back to your original question, I think the tactical play they, they made, made a lot of sense. There was a lot of data to suggest it. I do think that like in the last month of the election, you have to talk about the economy. I want to reiterate like your point about the permanent campaign. That is always what I internalize that term to me. That's an old political term. 
the permanent campaign. And the permanent campaign isn't a campaign to be like, hey, look what we did. Hey, look, every like every election, especially now, is is essentially a grievance election. And what the are Democratic, you pissed off about? Exactly. exactly. What are you mad about? And the Republicans are happy and have perfected the art of naming the alleged bad guy. I just want to underscore the alleged. I don't agree with who they name as the bad guy. But like they're very good at being like, this is the problem and this is the bad guy. And the Democrats, even though they're in power, I'm sure they're like, we can't campaign on the economy and inflation because we're the ones uh, you know, who are, yes. who are in control. But it's like that's not true. Like Donald Trump could figure out a way to run a campaign against inflation when he was the president, if if that was the problem. Like, it's the pro- it's the issue of like, are you willing to k- call out villains? And I tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think the Democrats are they're sort of uncomfortable with calling out any other villain other than maybe like Fox News and like the Republican Party writ yep. large. But they're not comfortable calling out like sort of specific villainous companies or even really specific villainous industries. I think that's generally right. I think there's some, I mean, like the oil companies in the Saudis are a great set of villains, right? From a political narrative's perspective. Mm-hmm. They're also like the people who are genuinely benefiting from the the spike in oil prices. Um, I think, I think they're individuals are in individual settings, but they are not willing to wage campaigns on it. Like that, that I think is, I mean, I think you could have seen a big oil is screwing you by gouging prices. That's the one I've been waiting for, man. I mean, really, because it's the Republican donors. And when you look at the campaign finance reports, like three to three to one, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So it's not like, right. So there's lots of places like, you know, there's lots of places where Democrats end up cross pressured by their donor base. Yes. Oil isn't really one of them. Like the energy (laughs) sector, particularly like. Even, you know, the the real people who are making a mint right now, who are also coming in to pump a lot of oil, are the sort of mid-level producers who are like the most conservative, most Republican donor. Like, they're more conservative than the big, big firms. Yes. Um, But the other thing here, too, and again, this is like the the Mohammed bin Salman problem and ultimately like a huge problem about having your whole political economy dependent on fossil fuels is they need these people to pump oil. I mean, Joe Biden needs them. Like these same people that you're going to, you know, that I think it's good politics to go after in your ads are the people that you need to be like actually pumping more oil to bring prices down. Because if there's one thing that determines people's political mood, it's the price of oil. And this is something that I think is so important at a political economy level over and above the climate is like, getting to a universe where this is not the central factor. I mean, you see it all across Europe right now. Like, it's just, it's so determinative. Sure, but let me push back and ask you. It's not like being nice to the oil companies. Like, okay, we're we're not going to air ads and we're going to be super nice to you. Like, that doesn't matter. Like, they're literally, they got like the smartest numbers crunchers in the world being like, we're going to pump this much and this much. Right. right? Like, so so it doesn't, the, the political ads that they could air yes. doesn't matter. And like I feel I actually feel like it does underneath- matter a little bit with the Saudis. I think there's more fine, of an explicit fine. thing okay, with the yes, Saudis. Fine. Who also I think are make a great foil, like in app. You know what I mean? Sure. So I think there's more of a like sure. that's a more but you're right. Like when you're talking about these these mid these mid-sized firms, like they're not they're making calculations not based on who's running ads against. Them. Right. So my question then is let's go a little deeper here. Tell me if you think my theory is wrong. That the reason the Democrats don't like to name villains. The reason they don't run permanent campaigns 
use the bully pulpit to really consistently name villains traces back not only to their campaign donors and just, you know healthcare pharma et cetera right, et cetera right. but also even with somebody like the oil companies that they don't get a lot of money from it goes back to something about norms it goes back to something about like the elite discourse and we don't want to be portrayed as anti-business and we need to be portrayed as like serious and like serious parties, serious, non-fascist, non-demagogic leaders. Yep. You know, they don't bash in a populist. Of course, that word has now become bad. They don't bash in a populist way like an industry. It's primitive. It's not cool. It's sort of anti-norms. I feel like that undergirds a lot of democratic culture. Fair or not? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, I think that I think that's like both institutional norms. I think there's like a temperamental aspect to it too i mean you'll see them like people will you know when when they're in a corner people will find the right targets to go after <laughs> right right <laughs> that's why but you see by like biden belatedly now is like the oil companies are like ripping us off it's like oh you, you're two weeks from the election right it's a little bit of like a break glass kind of thing but you're yeah. right there's a resistance there yeah. Um, and again, like, I do think all of this, you, it's interesting you're talking about populism and that being a bad word. I do think like, I do think like the weirdness of the political rhetoric and the, and the sort of authoritarian impulses have spun people around on all this stuff where people are very like wary about who are they dividing against and how and what those lines are. But I also think like there's ways to do that that are like totally legitimate, and not like abusive of the public, you know? A absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think like when when you see Katie Porter as an example, she, like she's not violating norms. She's like, no, she's like, here's the profit. Here's where the profits are coming from in price in, in pricing power. M making powerful people uncomfortable yes. is not a violation of norms when it's nope. the powerful people who are creating the problems. Okay, that's a Correct. good segue to my 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 next question, which is about the Supreme Court. We mentioned talked about abortion. Uh, uh, obviously that's of, uh, even more heightened, uh, importance right now, public trust in the Supreme court, all time low. Uh, we know that there, the court feels it's itself that it has a legitimacy problem. Uh, on a recent episode, even of pod save America, former president Barack Obama said, if we reform the Supreme court simply by figuring out ways to get more Democrats on there and stack it up then it's not going to solve the legitimacy problem of the Supreme Court. It's just that we'll win more cases for a while. So so clearly, even he is acknowledging, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of very establishment institutional voice of the party that the Supreme Court has a legitimacy problem. Why do you think the party leadership has been very, very hesitant to kind of make a political argument about the court as an institution beyond just saying it's like there's a discordance between like the court is ruining the entire world, which I, you know, I, I, I effectively believe on climate, abortion, et cetera, right, et cetera. Right. And like, hey, we're not really prepared to do much of anything other than say, like, we got to get a Democratic president, and a Democratic Senate to put maybe one more judge on the court, not to actually structurally take it on. What, what is the hes hesitance to do this? Well, I think there's a few things. One, I think to go back to your temperamental norm thing, I think like Biden is just like doesn't like that. Like I just think – and that's deep. I think that's not like a yeah. political calculation. I think that's like in his right. core. Former chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He's like 5,000 years ago. Yeah. Right. yeah, and I think actually like this is a thing I think that you would probably agree with is just like I do think people underestimate the role ideology has in politicians. Like 
they really like they have their donors and they have political calculations, but they actually do believe in things. Sometimes they believe in really wrong things or things I think are wrong, but they really do believe in them and they will pursue those beliefs sometimes to great cost. I mean, by not taking rhetorical paths that would be politically advantageous by like. And so I think that that to get back to your original point about sort of norms and things like that, I do think that's a huge part of it. So that's a B. It's also a little bit of this. If you don't have the votes, which they don't, right? Like it's a little bit of like threatening to shoot a hostage you can't shoot, right? If you're making a big threat about we're going to expand the court, and it's like, well, we know that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema aren't going to—they're not even going to overturn this filibuster. They sure as hell aren't going to do it to like expand the court. It's like, what are you threatening, right? Although I will say, I do think threatening has its own civic role in making the court a little worried, which I don't think would be the worst thing because right now there's not a lot of checks on the court. So I think in like a, a, a constitutional sense, the interplay between power of the different branches, even if you can't do it, making noise about doing it might actually serve as a kind of useful check on some of the court's worst impulses at, at, at this point. You're speaking my language. I am like in the middle of Jeff Schessel's book, uh, Supreme Power, Franklin Roosevelt versus the Supreme Court. This is what I- Which is like, right. The, which the is the ultimate all, example of that. Yes. yes. And and you know what's interesting about that is, is that it is sort of, I feel like the memory of that or the, nobody, you know, most people aren't old enough to remember that. Uh, I don't think, you know, but but I guess the, the created memory of that is like FDR screwed up by challenging the court. Uh, and- I don't think it's necessarily exactly the opposite. Like it was a huge, huge, like uh, clear win for him, but he definitely got some things out of that Absolutely. court by having that fight. That fight. And, and so it just speaks to your point about like threatening carefully with precision actually does have a utility, even if you don't have a hostage to, to act, you know, to, to, to act on. <laughs> well, and I think to, for, for folks that are not familiar, right? Like, the the court packing was the the Supreme Court kept overturning huge parts of New Deal legislation. FDR was like, enough, we're going to add more justices to the court. There was a huge fight over this. It was actually quite unpopular. Like we have polling from the time and people like yep. didn't like it. They thought it was overreach. Ultimately, though, before he ever kind of has to do it or the, the question is called, like the court kind of changes its jurisprudence. And there's always been this long political debate and historical debate about like, was that coincidence? Was it accident? Do they realize what's happening? But the thing I would I would say about that episode, and I totally agree with you, it's a really important one, is two things happen. One is that I agree that like it was more successful than history records as like Roosevelt overreach, but also like he spent political capital. Like it was a you know what I mean? And like that's the other thing about it. Like if you're gonna have a fight over the court, like some people will think you're overreaching. Some people will, you know, fight against you. So that's a it's not a casual fight, right? No, it's like you're it's either in or you're fight. like, no. that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. It's not a casual fight. And so you got to think about where that political capital gets spent, which I think is the third reason, honestly, that it's been deprioritized, even though it's like, I agree with you, like, and it probably one of the biggest threats. Okay. I'm going to ask you some media related questions because obviously right. you are in the media. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to ask you some, like, uh, hopefully these aren't uncomfortable questions, but if they yeah. are, you know, here we go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Like, you're at a network that has focused a lot on the January 6th situation, the threat yep. to democracy, which to be very clear, I think the January 6th riot and the threat to democracy are really important issues. But the latest Ipsos poll shows that only about 7% of Americans think this is the most important issue 
in the election. We talked about that, the economy, there's an inflation crisis, right. et cetera. So I guess one question is, do you think, if not only specifically cable TV news, but cable TV news as part of a kind of fragmented media and the ratings incentives, the click incentives with relatively fragmented small audiences, you know, not 25 Super Bowl right, level right, audiences. Yep. Do you think that contributes to or creates the incentive system for a discourse that like doesn't focus on, for instance, macroeconomic issues, or there's more of an incentive to focus in on something like um, a more cinematic, like the January totally. 6th and the threat to democracy. Are those incentives? Is there a problem there? I mean, I've, I'm writing a book about this right now, so I have literally a book's length of thoughts. I mean, first of all, I would say the attentional incentives draw on everyone. In fact, the intentional incentives that I used to find the most intense in cable news are now on everyone. Every Patreon, every podcast, every TikToker, everyone is fighting the same intentional battle. And you will see like, it's like, wait, why is this Twitch streamer beefing with this Twitch streamer all of a sudden? I thought they were just doing a thing about like either politics. And it's like, no, because they need eyeballs. And like what gets eyeballs is beef. So it's like everyone is operating under some set of attentional incentives. Those intentional incentives are also going to be very different than what pollsters say is, quote, the most important, right? So there's like a few things going on. One is like, I used to tell young journalists all the time, when you're pitching something like, it's not enough to be a topic, it's got to be a story, right? So it's like, yes, what's the number one story? Like, prices are up. What's the attentionally dynamic way to tell that story? And we've seen it. Like, if you watch local news, here's the family that it, they're you know, their milk is up and like, but what people find quote, most important to poll and what they will intentionally adhere to is going to be different. And then I also think like, I've, I've been doing this for 10 years now. I think cable news is drawing it good at drawing attention to some things and not good at drawing attention to other things, partly because it's operating in a medium that has these attentional incentives and constraints. So like, Big climactic battles like whether America is going to be a democracy, which to me is like broader than January 6th, but that is like part of it, is a story that we're actually relatively good at telling in a way that fits the genre. Like I also have a podcast. I'm writing a book. <laughs> like I'm actually working on like a TV show and all of those kind of find different ways to like tell different stories. But like, yeah, cable news is not great. I would not say that like the intentional incentives and also the medium itself are best disposed to give like, I think what we think of as the old evening news or the old newspaper, which is like, here are all the stories in the world or like all the news that fits the print. It never functions that way. And I also think that's why people should not just get their news from cable news, which I say to people all the time. Like the, the, the scary thing is that everybody now is under those same incentives. <laughs> so like, I'm not even sure anyone has the incentives anymore, particularly as audiences fracture. If 30 million people are going to watch you at night and you know you have those 30 million and maybe if you go away, maybe not, it's like you can do like, here's the news of the day. But if you're fighting and scrapping for each of those 10,000 viewers at the margin, like it gets a lot harder to be like, here's what happened with the election in Kenya today. Sure. So I guess then the, qu the question with that is a good segue. Are there examples? where you wanted to do a set of stories that you either feared would 
not generate the attention that the kind of incentive system, the demands of your job require, or even more heavy handedly where the bosses were like, dude, you got to be covering this and not this. And you're like, but over here, this other thing is like super important. And I want to cover, I mean, one, I, one, you know, this comes up the climate that always comes up in the, in the sort of discourse about media coverage of the climate. Like, why aren't they covering climate? Right. So I'm just wondering, are there specific situations or examples or even topics where you're like, I want to cover this more. I know we need to cover this more. I have an, uh, at least on a day to day level, a built in audience. It's not going to leave tomorrow. Right. right? right. Like, like I want to do this and the pressure system, the higher ups, the incentive system is just like, no, you you can't do that. You've got to be over here. Basically, never the higher ups like the 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 attentional incentives are. And, you know, people see this who write for a living like you can see, like what stories get clicked. Sure. (laughs) Absolutely. You know that like some topics just they don't people don't click up and like that that's true of a lot of things. I mean, the biggest thing that that's true of is climate. Like the biggest thing I wrestle with is how to productively cover climate. And I think that's in some ways gotten a little easier, partly because like weather disasters have gotten more persistent. But the biggest problem for me with climate at a, at a sort of attentional level is just not it being doom. Like it, it just, you could just say like, here's another example of how we're screwed. And here's another example of how we're screwed. And like, we even have this thing where we like try to do these sort of like good new, bad news, good news when we do them. So that there's some takeaway, like we did a thing about the Italian heat pump program, which is awesome. They're basically like subsidizing people to buy heat pumps. Yep. But yes, like, do we cover climate as much as climate is worthy of news? Like, of course not. (laughs) Does anyone? Like, probably not. But then here's the other thing. There are climate-focused publications that do great work, right? Sure. But like, it's hard to get millions of people to watch that. All right, let me push back, though. Let me ask you what the difference then, if the old adage in news all the way, it's it's such an adage in news that it's like, it, it makes me think of Anchorman and like old local right. news, right? If it bleeds, it leads, right? Like, okay. And like local news is typically like cliche local news is like crime, 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 right? Local crime, crime. It's always, always. like crime. Still okay. now. Okay, right. And crime in some ways is a fundamentally doomer kind of story. Like somebody got robbed, somebody got killed over and over and right, over right. again. Right. So I guess the question then is if if that's a successful ratings model for local news, why would climate doom doom or climate disaster not be a successful ratings model for local news, national news. And by the way, I just want to be clear. I'm not hope like I think doomerism is a separate problem, but just on the on the apples to apples comparison, wh- why not? I mean, I focus on this a lot, right? Like it's it's the diffuseness of it. So it's a little bit of like if you compare climate to coronavirus, I think. Like people like we'll lose like way more people this week than we'll lose to homicide. Like way mm-hmm. more. Way way mm-hmm. way more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Does it have the same dramatic impact? No. Is it playing the same role when you ask people like, what are you most concerned about? COVID is like the bottom. It's still killing way more factors of people than homicide. That's crazy to think about. I mean, it's you're right. I mean, it's like crazy. So why? Right. So why? Because people like it just the and this has always been the struggle of climate. Is it like crime? 
there's something about personal threat of another person that's different than as we just learned literally <laughs> of a virus or a molecule of carbon. Now, I do think the one place where this has changed and which is true is that like people love weather. Like they love weather. <laughs> and I think that and I do think the thing that has changed for the better is that weather disaster coverage, which does rate people are interested in, has gotten much more climate imbued mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the last like, I'd say three or four years. Like we've always done it through that lens. But I think now it becomes more and more, you know, part of the mainstream way that it's understood dude i'm i'm coming to you from denver where we got mike nelson the local wet weather guy is like mr climate guy right like that's a big win right so that you're that's a really and good it used point. to be the opposite All totally those the, those the weather used to be like the most reactionary <laughs> anti-climate right. like caucus on earth yeah um so that i think is a big thing but like i don't know i i don't think i've ever like solved the attentional rubik's cube of climate um and i've We've tried a bunch of different ways. There are different ways of telling the story, but it's a hard one. Your show, along with other MSNBC shows, focuses a decent amount of attention on Fox News, right-wing media. The presumed goal has been to basically educate the audience on its lack of credibility, its partisan nature, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know... The question of whether there's already been buy-in from like the MSNBC audience, and in the meantime, Fox News has gotten gotten bigger and stronger. One question I always wonder about is what is the utility of whether it's MSNBC? I'm not just you know isolating that sort of right. sort of left of center media constantly scandalizing. By the way, on the merits, right? I agree with right. it. Like Fox News and and the right wing media is an evil force, but what is the utility of it? Is there a political utility of it? Because I feel like everybody who watches your show kind of basically knows that Fox News is like, you know, essentially evil, misleading, not accurate, and sort right. of incendiary in a horrible way. Like, what's the utility of it? Is there a utility of it? I think there's two utilities. One is that like sometimes people say things that are wrong that you want to correct. I mean, just in the same sure. way that like you like argue with people on Twitter, or you argue sure. with people on blogs. It's like, this person said that, like, they think there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And it's like, here's the reason I don't think there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Okay, like, so just, like, straight correcting the record. Yeah, right, like, just yeah. fighting, just public debate, which I think is... Yeah. The, the other thing I do think is true is, like, I do honestly think people who don't... Uh, we monitor it much more than our audience does. And, like, some of the stuff is, like, really wildly insidious and people need to like the vaccine stuff i think like isn't really fully appreciated yes like we have the lowest levels of vaccination of any pure country we have just seen white deaths surpass the deaths of people of color we're seeing like it's coming out in this like stark lives terms like more people are dying more white older people are dying in the most conservative parts of the country because like causally 100 percent mm -hmm. <laughs> of the messaging that has been primarily from fox hammered into people yep and i think it's like at some level you can't really understand what's going on in the country like when you look at the numbers you look at our vaccination numbers it's like what what is up with americans <laughs> and i it's was like, just part I of was... the answer to that question is that 
one of the most powerful media platforms has just been telling people to do a thing that's going to make them more likely to die. And it's one of the sickest things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, listen, man, when I talk to my brother, who's a physician about this topic, like he can barely not like keep from being in a rage because he sees it in the hospital yeah. every day. Like he sees people dying. The thing that's crazy, I was talking to a friend about this. The thing that's so crazy and your point is, is about Fox is so on point. It's like here is actually an amazing success story of the dysfunctional uh Totally. Public health system in America. We created a vaccine with government support. Even the support. Trump administration, if you want to like yes. propagandize for right. them, just right. say it. <laughs> like a free, life-saving vaccine, super quick, somehow freely available, widely available in a country whose public health in infrastructure is otherwise a joke. Right? Like this is a huge success story. And there's a large part of the population that is paying attention to this media machine that's like no we, we actually don't this huge success we actually don't want like get it out of my face like i don't want it and now we see the results and the results the higher death rates even that hasn't turned like woken people up and i do think you're right it does go back in part to what you are plugged into on a daily basis i think that's a fair point i would say I mean, i've been saying this for a while that like the vaccine to me is like the perfect encapsulation of America and all its contradictions, which is like this incredible achievement, like born of the fruits of labor from people from different parts of the world, including immigrants and the public sector and the private sector, right? Like big pharma and the government and all these things coming together to like, and our top scientific researchers all coming together to create this miracle. And then like, people just be like, no, screw that. <laughs> I don't want the magic pill that you have that would like help me, you know, and then, the, but the, here's the last thing I would say, which I think actually like unites this whole conversation, which is that like the thing I've also learned about Fox, and you see this in the, you know, conservative world, they're all chasing attention too. Like as much as they're, the reason they're doing the vaccine stuff is because that's what, that's what their audience wants. It's, it's much less they're commanding them. Like everyone is on the, is on the chase well, side. Well, it's like symbiotic. It's, it's symbiotic. symbiotic. It's, it's symbiotic, like they create more, the demand and then it, yeah. But it's more chasing than you would realize, right? Like it's like even they can't just, and you saw this, the place you saw is the 2016 primary where they wanted to be like, do not vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> they wanted to like tell their audience like, that's no, not this guy. And they couldn't do it. I want to ask one last question about the changing of democratic politics to bring this whole conversation full circle. We're two weeks before an election. It has been six years since the end of the Obama administration. With 2020 hindsight, knowing about the financial crisis, the bailout, the sort of social discontent with people, millions of people being thrown out of their homes, seeing that while also watching on their TV, bankers getting bailed out. The ACA being touted as this great success. Now health insurance prices going up 24%. The discontent from that, I believe, helped create the conditions for the Trump MAGA movement. And I wonder if you think there is any reevaluation uh, in the Democratic media space, the Democratic Party as a whole, 
of the veneration of either Obama himself or really Obamaism, neoliberalism that led us to this moment. Like, is there a willingness to kind of reevaluate the things that got us to this moment? Or do you think that's just like not like a not a kind of thing that people, liberals, whatever you want to call Democrats, want to right. even think about? Or do you think things are like changing a little bit? Like there, if not, there's an explicit awareness of what's happened, that there's kind of an implicit shift. Well, I think Trump's election changed the way that that period is going to looked at forever. I mean, I think there's a cardinal sin of those years, and it's born partly of the people around Barack Obama, partly Barack Obama, partly the Fed. But just there was an enormous, more than the bailouts, more than anything, the failure to achieve full employment and to try to get to full employment as rapidly as possible. That's partly born of the austerity measures that come when the Republicans take the House. It's partly born of Ben Bernanke. It's partly born of the people around Barack Obama and Barack Obama and worried about deficits and pivoting to deficits. But the central, the central failure was being told you can't get back to full employment when in fact you could have. And I think if you got back, if that recovery wasn't the grinding, terrible recovery it was for years, the politics of the country would be better, full stop. So that to me is like the big cardinal error, even though there's individual things like the way they handled mortgages, which was terrible and all that stuff. But the bigger thing to me is like, you got to look at an international context, which is like, this happened everywhere. Now, partly you could say it happened everywhere because neoliberalism happened everywhere. But like the the crisis, its aftermath and the rise of right wing authoritarian movements and sort of hard right politics has happened in basically every country across the West and outside. Um, and I think like the causes for that are just bigger than they're even bigger than neoliberalism. I mean, I think a lot of them have to do with the aftermath of the of the crisis and the and the ideological exhaustion of neoliberalism as a model. But I think there's a whole bunch of other factors that have produced it. And I think like in terms of reassessment, it's like the thing about presidents is always like compared to what? Like it's just, you know, you're it's a it's like a class with a curve. <laughs> it's like you know, better than Trump, not as good as FDR, uh Better than LBJ on some things, worse on others, probably better than Clinton. Like, you know, I think the, the healthiest way to look at presidents is always like understanding what, you know, where they are in that in that set. But the, the most important thing, I think, to draw from that period and in a weird way, a lesson completely learned by the Democratic Party that they are now paying for through the nose is full employment, full employment, full employment. All of the things that they got wrong, the last crisis, a lot of them, they got right this time. They passed the ARP and they have pushed this economy to three and a half percent unemployment. Rapid, the fastest growing jobs we've ever seen. More union and labor power than has ever been seen in my lifetime. And people hate it because there's 8% unemployment. So part of it, too, is just like you never get the same set of challenges twice, you know, and like that has been like a, a really wild thing for me to watch as someone who has so many scars from the deficit full employment battles of 2009, where there are all these people saying nonsense who are wrong and all of us shouting <laughs> that this is this is madness. And 
we, we could have a much faster recovery. We shouldn't be talking about deficits. We shouldn't be talking about austerity. There's all this demand. There's all this bad debt. We need to get people back to work. We need to stimulate to win that intellectual battle. And then find yourself in a macroeconomic environment in the next Democratic administration, which ends up being almost the inverse, where it's like the fastest recovery in ever, unemployment at three and a half percent, more jobs created than ever, huge amounts of stimulus spending, five trillion dollars over the course of two years. Totally unimaginable in scale to me back in 2009. And now you've got eight percent unemployment and high home, home and gas prices and people like this sucks. I do think that at the beginning of Biden's term, he definitely learned some of those lessons from the early Obama years and put them into play when when he the American Rescue Plan, I have said from the beginning, was like one of the best things that has ever happened legislatively, frankly, in my lifetime. Like I can't yeah. really remember any piece of legislation that has been that dramatic and that much of a essentially a divorce from the austerity Totally. ideology like it was like actually we're going to intervene in the economy and actually directly help people in the middle and at the bottom instead of helping pe- sprinkling stuff at the top yep. and my fear is and maybe this is maybe i'll ask you one last quick question my fear yep. is if the democrats lose the congress in the election the republicans have said they want to cut social security and medicare and i'm sure they'll bring out some nice sounding banner called it entitlement reform quote unquote And Joe Biden has been warning about this, but I have a long memory. And I remember Joe Biden sort of fetishizing the idea of of a grand bargain to do, quote unquote, entitlement reform for 40 years. That's just a matter of record. Now, maybe Joe Biden has changed. But I wonder to ask you to speculate just a little bit. Like, do you think there's a danger that like Republicans get into Congress? Biden is still the president. Biden you know, like every demo, like Bill Clinton in 94, after the 94 election, sort yep. of like a yep. like a sort of impulse to triangulate. And Biden is like, you know what? I have a chance for this grand bargain on cutting Social Security or raising the retirement age. I have a chance to do this, something that I've pushed for for 40 years that I've never had in my entire life. And maybe this is a like, are we going to enter a situation where the next thing we're going to hear about is another Bowles Simpson commission? But now with the Republicans in Congress, who want to do it and a democratic president. Am I, am I like crazy to like be concerned about that? You're not crazy, but I think there's two, I think first of all, it is literally more likely of like a default, (laughs) which I think is like the real tail risk I'm worried about because I don't think Republicans have any incentive to do anything other than make the economy terrible. Like why would they, they're trying to get Donald Trump and a Republican elected in 2024. Like what will increase the odds of that? The economy being terrible, like I just don't. So, so partly, like my bigger worry is that a B. I think ten years ago I'd be more worried. I just think that things have changed in the Democratic coalition so much, and I do think that Joe Biden retains enough raw political sense, which I think has been on display with the use of the strategic oil reserve, petroleum reserve, <laughs> to get those gas prices down, and the student debt announcement. I think he retains enough just like old school transactional sense of political astuteness that he understands that would be a terrible misstep politically. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thank you for taking all of my uh, questions. Hopefully they didn't make you uncomfortable at all. And I should I should say no. thank you for being the kind I'm of a big boy. Kind of the, yeah, you are. I'm and, a big boy. And thanks for being the kind of person who like 
over many years, you and I have had these discussions and I appreciate you doing sure, it for yeah. our podcast. Thanks, man. You bet. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview with Anand Jirad Haradas about the lost art of persuasion. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our next segment, I'm going to be speaking with journalist and author Anand Jirad Haradas about the power and really the lost art of political persuasion. Anand has a new book out called The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy. In the book, he argues that persuasion is one of the most powerful yet neglected tools when it comes to overcoming the extreme polarization of modern politics. Anand details how activists, politicians, and educators use persuasion to reach across the aisle and achieve their political goals rather than writing off their opponents as ignorant or unreachable. There's some big sections in the book, by the way, about the Bernie 2020 campaign. Anand and I had a great conversation and spoke for almost an hour discussing and debating the topic, going deep. Really, it's one of those discussions uh, that you don't usually have in a five-minute or even five-second soundbite environment. So here's that first half of my conversation with Anand Jirad Hardis. Anand, it's great to see you. As always, uh, we've known each other a long time. On this episode, you're going to persuade me that persuasion is what's lacking in our society. How are things with you? Um, great. It's so good to talk to you. You're, this is a rare case where you're both the interviewer about the book, but you are also in the book. I don't know if that's a, that's kind of one of the conflicts of interest that you normally are breaking <laughs> wide open, but here yes. you are just we're, we're just inhabiting that that conflict of interest. right? Yes, now. I am quoted in this book uh, about persuasion. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Let, let's start with the top line here. The book is called The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fights for Hearts, Minds and Democracy. One of the arguments baked into this book is the idea that persuasion is uh, a critical thing in a democracy, that democracy is predicated on changing minds. There's that old idea that democracy is, or politics in, in a democracy is war by other means, and the war, therefore, in part, one of the weapons is persuasion. And you argue that our culture kind of is lacking valuing persuasion anymore. Tell us a little bit more about that thesis, What, wh where you came to it from, how you came up with this notion that we're lacking respect for the idea of persuasion in our politics and our democracy. I think if you step back and you say, for you know, all of human history, there's been roughly two big theories about how we should make decisions about the future, right? Because shit comes up in any community that we got to make a group decision, right? Do those people get let into the village or not? Is this ceremony allowed or not? Should we drain the lake when the winter comes or not? And for almost all of human history, except for the quirk of the last few hundred years, it was felt, I think by a very large number of people, that it was best to let one guy in the community just decide those things for everybody. Too complicated to get everybody involved, to get even 10 people involved. And so for most of human history, we've been ruled by just like the one guy, almost always an actual guy. And in the last few hundred years, a quite radical alternative arose, the one that has given you your, your kind of purpose and vocation, which is the idea that we should actually all make these decisions about the future together, that we should have a like 
rollicking, roiling, perpetual 24-7 conversation about everything at all times. And through this conversation, through this argument, through acts of expressing preferences in voting, but not only that, canvassing, voting with our feet in any number of ways, make these decisions about the future, choose the future, make the future through this kind of act of like mass dysfunctional, beautiful group conversation. And I start that way to say, this is a very small period of history where this has been the dominant view of how things should be done. It's had a really good run. And this idea is probably as imperiled and as under real questioning as it's certainly been in your and my lifetime, partly because of all the anti-democratic stuff, again, happening in other countries too. <laughs> it's not all just because the Electoral College and the Koch brothers. It's happening in Brazil. It's happening in you know Europe. It's happening in India, certainly one of the big losses. And I think the rise of China is an interesting phenomenon, a real counterexample of a country that has stuck to autocracy and been incredibly successful by certain measures. And so we're in this moment where the idea, the dominant idea of the last 300 years, which is that we choose the future, we should choose the future by talking to each other and figuring it out and attempting to change each other's minds in order to change things. That idea is up for grabs and in play in a way that I don't know that I ever expected in my lifetime. And so to me, persuasion is at the very core of that whole idea. Because if in a certain year, gay people cannot get married, and it is a live question facing this community as more and more people come out as gay, that we need to decide whether we're locking more and more of these gay people out of this institution or change our definition of marriage. If the idea of you and I talking that through and figuring out what are your values, what does your religion really allow if you think about it more deeply? What is my fear behind this thing really about? Why is it that gay people want to be part of this institution? If we can't have those conversations, what we're actually doing is opening the door for how things used to be a really long time ago, which is, okay, let's sort this out through violence, or let's sort this out by having one guy decide everything. And in a moment where we literally have the rising autocracy and rising political violence, I think it is very much related to this loss of faith in persuasion. And this loss of faith shows up in all kinds of ways. It shows up in benign forms and in malignant forms. I think it shows up in a kind of fatalism that a lot of us have, that I certainly feel about those anti-vaxxers. What are we gonna, come on, they're never gonna come around. Those Trump people, I mean, if you voted for him once, you voted for him twice, clearly racism is something thrilling for you, you know, so on and so forth. All the way to the kind of very toxic forms where we're not persuading because we want to just overturn election results and we think, that's much easier than actually winning an argument. But in a whole bunch of ways, I think our culture has turned against the idea that it is possible to change people's minds. And that is both an empirically false statement, as you know, as someone who's worked in politics and saw arguments make a difference. How you frame a candidate makes a difference. Speeches, as you know very well, make a difference. A movement that... in the United States of America, Bernie Sanders' movement would have been laughed out of town a few years before it won nearly half the states in this country, right? Uh, we see it works. We see Donald Trump won the first time and did not win the second time. And the country's, you know, quite different. 
because of that shift in minds that a lot of people had, millions of people had. And so I became interested in people who were resisting this kind of great write-off that I saw around me, a write-off that I participate in myself, whether I'm proud of it or not. Organizers in particular, this is in some ways a book about like the Tao of organizing, you know, about the, the soul of organizing. And I think what a lot of the organizers and others that I spent time with, what they bring to the table is a deep moral commitment on some of these issues, a deep desire to change the society in very fundamental transformational ways, a real moral commitment to having a society that works for everybody. And yet, what I think most of them that I wrote about in The Persuaders share in common that is different from the rest of us is they fundamentally believe it's possible to persuade. They have ideas about how to do so. They're doing it on the ground every day and they refuse to give up on people. That doesn't mean they think everybody's in play. It doesn't mean they're trying to go talk to you know fascists who are like shooting beer bottles in their backyard for practice. But it means that they view a significant number of Americans as being in frankly a perpetual state of moral contradiction of not being entirely clear about how to make sense of the world. And they view their role as organizers as not just to provoke, not just to offer a policy agenda, but to walk with millions of people one way or another in the process of forming a consciousness that will lead to the kind of world they want. And I became very interested in their project and, and tried to try to write about it so that we could all learn how to be maybe a little bit more like them. What they're doing comes out of what is called and certainly used to be called uh, uh, to a greater degree political education in the labor movement right the the kind of old school labor movement had a piece of it that was about political education which is you know it's about educating people on what's actually going on in the world so that they can arrive at a political analysis i want to push back though on one thing baked into this thesis which is the idea that we're hostile to or that we can't be persuaded uh, or that that's under attack. I often think about the organizer having done campaigns, having done those kinds of things in my life where you're not – and you tell the story of people knocking on the door, uh, this kind of idea of what, as it's called deep canvassing. You knock on the door. You're not just there to say, will you vote for this or that candidate, but to actually just hear people uh, talk about where they are politically or on different issues or whatever. And that that can be a persuasive moment. Uh, that can be a more persuasive way to uh, change uh, communities, people's thinking. But here's, the, here's where, what I worry about is that the minute that door closes, there is a 24-7 persuasion machine being pumped into that house through cable television, uh, through social media. And so it's not that people can't be persuaded. It's not that even regular rank and file folks are against the idea of being persuaded. It's that there's a persuasion machine connected to them through their phone and through their television 24 hours a day. So I think the the more micro question is, it's not can people be persuaded, it's how do you persuade people to, to even realize that they're being perpetually persuaded and frankly manipulated by the most powerful people through that machine, which they may not consider sort of be conscious of on a moment to moment basis is something that's trying to manipulate and persuade. This is why I love talking to you. This is the 
core question that's at the heart of the book. And I think you are exactly right. I saw that when I went to Arizona to actually witness people doing this deep canvassing. One of the guys in particular was a just a like awful, beautiful example of this because his consciousness was like, imagine if you like printed out 24 hours of Fox News transcripts and then you took scissors and you just like cut, like you cut different like strips of ribbons of the words and then you just like <laughs> threw them around a room and then picked them back up and assembled them in a different order and then just like had someone read them. Like that's how that man talked, right? You are absolutely right. But to me, David, that is not a reason for us to be fatalistic about that kind of work of persuasion. That is the reason we need to get involved in persuasion and compete with that. Because right now, you are absolutely right now, and I, I want to go deep on this because I think this is a really crucial point. The word that I would use here is meaning-making. And a lot of organizers use this word meaning-making. What the apparatus inside the house and on the phone is doing, the rights extended media apparatus, is what I would call meaning-making. A very concerted, quite intelligent, shrewd process of meaning-making, which is different from, I give you the news, right? Like people think of MSNBC as, you know, people casually will say it's like the the like the left Fox, like it's not in a whole bunch of ways, right? And I work with MSNBC. It's, it's not, and it's not for a whole bunch of reasons. The most important reason it's not is MSNBC is like covering, like the thing driving each block is like a thing that happened in Washington or is happening in Washington, right? And it's not like starting with you and your life and what you're feeling, right? It's starting with like this bill is advancing or like this investigation's going on or like this, Committee is doing this, right? And then it's explaining it to you, you know, and I mean, like your site, very different from MSNBC, but broadly, like in the tradition of media, you, and you in the same way, you like start with like, what's the development? What's the thing that's happening? If I step back and think about what Fox is really doing or what a lot of these sites, particularly the more out there ones are really doing, they are actually, they're not doing that, but for the right, they're starting in a different place. They're starting, it's kind of like user-centered media, right? They're starting with, what are you feeling? What are you afraid of? What are your anxieties? Your kid came home and said, what about America and slavery? You have to do what kind of training at work now? What? 5% of your time at work? And you're not being paid for those trainings? You, you got to go to these trainings? Of, and they say, what about people at those trainings? Right? Wait, you... People in our community now are called Latin X. They're not called Latino or Latina anymore. Wait, wait, what? Like, right? These things, it's kind of interesting. In my town, I used to be able to speak in English to all the cashiers at the Walgreens. I can't anymore. These are the just regular experiences that regular people have all the time. They're pre-political experiences, you could say, right? They're just like, your kid says a thing. You notice something at Walgreens, just pre-political. What Fox and the whole right-wing ecosystem do brilliantly is start from those anxieties you're having. I don't know what research they do. I would love to know more about that. Maybe they just, they get it. They start from that, right? And then they got this truck of wares that they want to deliver to you. But they're not starting, I think as folks on the left do, with like, here's the truck of wares and why it's really, really important that you buy these wares. It's like, 
Oh yeah, you're you don't like these trainings, huh? You're anxious that the you don't like the Spanish speaking at the Walgreens, right? Oh, your kid said what? Right? And then the whole content of the news is like backing the truck of wares awkwardly into what's going on with you. It is based on I say this as a writer who like writes about like what's going on in people in a deep level. Like it is very good psychological insight that that whole project is based on really good understanding of people and their anxieties. You can say the anxieties are dumb, they're not dumb, they're righteous, they're not. I'm, I'm set that aside. People are just having these anxieties. People are seeing these stimuli and people are just confused by life. People are confused by every new thing that has ever happened in front of them, right? And the whole right-wing apparatus, the thing you are absolutely correctly describing as in the phone, on the TV, when that door closes, is not just, it's not just that it has more time with that guy than the canvassers do. It's that it is like hooking itself on to the psychological experience of being a person in 2022, a man who like so many men in this country knows, like, I can't be a man in the way my dad was a man. And like, my son is clearly able to like be a new kind of man in a way that I'm not like quite figuring out, like, who am I, right? How many, how many men are feeling that? White people, like, what does it mean to be white now? Like, can I not say things? What, should, what is allyship? What, like, right? There's people on all kinds of levels of that, right? From being annoyed at the trainings to being like super woke, but just still like, ah, what do I say? You know, manufacturing we used to be a thing we do. Now we don't do it anymore because of permanent normal trade relations with China. Suddenly, the whole concept of like, what is shape of a life looks like? What kind of education you need? Just gone from that town in North Carolina, right? People are feeling these things. And the right is there for them. It is talking them through it. It is meaning making. It is explaining. It is connecting those feelings to the alien invasion on the border. It is connecting that, that to George Soros. It is connecting that to Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and Kimberly Crenshaw. Like, people don't go to Kimberly Crenshaw by themselves, you know? Right. I mean, it is, what it's doing is it's, it's, it's taking their anxieties, their state of mind, uh, and, and connecting it persuading them to connect it, to use persuasion, uh, persuading them to connect it to a politi- a specific political project. Correct. And, Correct. And, and so I, my point is, and I think we agree, is that it's not necessarily that there's a hostility to being persuaded. It's that the most powerful people in the world have access to and have developed a machine of persuasion that is all powerful. Now, I want to be clear. I agree with you that people, rank and file people who are hooked up to that machine should not be written off. I mean, yes, like sort of hardcore fascists, sure. Like th- there are some folks who who just are down that rabbit hole. But I think back to the, and you write about this in the, in the book, I think back to the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign where Bernie went on Fox News, did a Fox News town hall, and there was some consternation about that. Uh, he was previously asked, I'm just using these as examples. He was asked after the 2016 election, you know, are, are, do you think it was some question along the lines of, do you think all Donald Trump voters are racist? And he said, you know, no, I don't think all Donald Trump voters are are racist. And that was like a scandal. Like that was the, the idea. And I think that got to the crux of something that you're talking about, which is that there is this idea that we just write off, I mean, you write off 80 million voters as essentially all unpersuadable deplorables. That idea is so fixed in the culture that it was scandalous for Bernie to be like, no, I don't think all 80 million voters are unreachable. Uh, and so I do think this is on both sides, right? This kind of tribalism that you talk about. But I, I also want to take issue 
with another part of your book, and again, we're agreeing a lot here, but this, this part of your book also got to me. You wrote, many political campaigns seem to focus more on mobilizing sympathetic voters than on winning over skeptics. Leaders who attempt outreach to the unpersuaded are attacked by their own sides as sellouts. Now, listen, I, again, I remember Bernie being criticized for being on Fox News and the like. So I agree with you and I disagree. I agree with you that this is that if you write off whole swaths of the population, especially if you're in politics, you're basically, if in a, in a certain sense, abandoning the, the small D democratic project. But I also do think politicians do use this idea of outreach to so-called moderate voters or swing voters as a way to justify actual selling out to their donors. So I guess my question on this is, how do we discern between a legitimate effort to persuade uh, persuadable voters and what I would call an illegitimate effort, which was often used in the Obama years, to use this sort of Obama-ish unity rhetoric, you know, not blue states, not red states, that ends up being a veneer for a kind of donor class agenda? Like, how do we discern between yes, the two? Yes, that's such a good... That's such a good question. Something I thought about a lot. So I'm going to, let's do this using a specific example of a topic area of policy, healthcare, right? In many ways, and I recognize it's a subtle thing, so this may not be obvious. I'm glad we're teasing it out. What I am trying to argue for is literally the opposite of the thing you're worried about, right? I think what you're talking about is in a way what this whole book is up against, which is persuasion through dilution, which has been the dominant theory of the Democratic Party, right? You you just persuade by just like, take the original like philosophical nucleus of a thing and then just like add a ton of water and then like, <laughs> and then you will reach people in the middle, right? And there's a whole bunch of reasons this is problematic, which we should kind of go through. Like, first of all, and this is an important moment in the book, like moderates are not people in the middle, right? And I really learned this from Anat Shankar Agreed. Osorio. Above all, moderates are people who have not yet committed to one dominant moral frame, right? Like, you're not a moderate just because you want really progressive things, David. You're not a moderate. The real sense in which you are not a moderate is your worldview is very baked through a lot of reading, experience, whatever, right? If anyone who has ever spent any time talking to voters knows that thankfully most people in this country are not like you and me. You know, like <laughs> most people are just like living their lives, doing normal things, like taking care of their kids, right? And so it is very normal to have conversations with voters in which they're like, I hate socialism, but I believe, you know, I, I had this so much when I was covering the Bernie campaign, right? Like, I hate socialism, but Bernie really seems like he's a, he's a, you know, he just, he, he just seems to, to fight for, yeah, I mean, this like is right. it's like get, get the government hands off my Medicare. That's what that is. All of it, right? right? Yeah. And so the dominant story of the Democratic Party is persuasion through delusion. So let's take healthcare. Like, let's start with like the lodestar idea. I think someone like Obama would agree that like the core philosophical nucleus of like what he's pursuing is like everyone having healthcare, right? And then you water, 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 water in the hope of reaching people and you get private insurance as the lead, not of course, universal. I mean, all the things you know, right? And the hope is you'll get Max Baucus and you'll get this and you get maybe some Republicans and, you know, you'll, you'll clone Romney's ideas and maybe all of that, right? That has been the dominant frame. 
What the Persuaders is interested in as a book is people who have an actually an opposite theory, which is persuasion through standing very firmly in conviction of a more demanding set of ideas and outreach that is rooted in the power of that standing firm and conviction, right? So again, so stick with healthcare and make that transparent. It was actually the opposite of what I just described with Obamacare. It is advocating for something like Medicare for all and sticking to that and then saying, and I think this is where progressives have some answering to do in terms of the selling of stuff like this. I think there are ways to talk about Medicare for all or some equivalent thing that are frankly way more outreachy in their approach, right? So this is not outreach through not doing Medicare for all. It's outreach through like, first of all, I would call it freedom care. I don't know why, why it's not called freedom care. Like, have you met American? Like, you know what I mean? Like, let's like work with what we've got here, people. Right. Like I listen to so many Bernie speeches about it that I admired. I listened to Elizabeth Warren's speeches about it. I listened to AOC speeches about it. Eloquent, powerful. Bernie, like healthcare is a human right. Here's the problem. Right. I don't know if you wrote those speeches. Like the problem is the people who don't like universal healthcare also don't like human right. You know what I mean? No, listen, you're speaking, you're speaking my language. I mean, I'll cut to the chase here. Like, listen, there were some of us in the campaign who were saying part of the message needed to be. And I don't just mean this for the campaign. I think for the whole Medicare for all movement, because we're talking specifics here. Let's talk about how that unshackles you from your job. Correct. Let's talk about how that unshackles small business, even big business from the rapacious health insurance industry and its bureaucracy and paperwork and, and horribleness, right? Like that's a part of the message that you're not backing away from. You're not watering down the Medicare for all message. You are expanding the imagination, uh, about what it would actually do. And that Correct. is a, I think, a very, very, very persuasive argument. So I, I hear, I, I think you're making a really, really good point here that persuasion doesn't mean water down, water down, water down into nothing. It means think about how to have your argument, uh, meet people where they are rather than necessarily where you want them to be. Uh, and that goes back, frankly, all the way to Saul Linsky. I mean, that was Saul Linsky's whole thing. You got to meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. To stick with this example, I mean, I think sometimes, this is a huge overgeneralization, but I think it has truth in it. If you think about the, the left very broadly defined, moderates, progressives, liberals, like whoever's in that enormous bucket that votes, you know, votes for Democrats most of the time. In some ways, we have a little bit ass backwards right now, which is the things we do end up being diluted. But the way we read to a lot of Americans is like as extremist, Right. And I kind of think we need to flip that around. I think we need the demands to be more radical and the appearance and imagery to be more moderate, right? And I don't think that's fraudulent. Like, I actually think Medicare for all would, practically speaking, be the single greatest expansion in the lived experience of liberty in this country in a long time, right? And, you know, and I think there's a whole missing language. It's freedom. Right. It's also like healthcare is like, you know, those kind of bills are just like the biggest stressor in marriages. Let's talk to people about their marriages. Like, do you want to like have a more joyous marriage? Do you, there's a whole level at which we're not 
communicating with people about what this stuff is. So I'm really glad you asked that because I think in a way what this, and you look at who I, who I interviewed, right? I, this is not a book with like Larry Summers as a character right, or right. like, you know, this is a book about very committed progressives, radicals in many cases, people who I think are as credible in their worlds as being like, you know, pretty clear stick in the muds for a set of ideals, not, not compromisers. What they are all interested in that I think not enough of us are interested in is why aren't these ideas like bigger and why aren't they reading to more people as, um, as, as, as their ideas, as their intuitions manifested into policy. Um, and so I think the, the alternative to persuasion through dilution is persuasion uh, that is grounded in deep conviction and oriented towards moral outreach, psychological outreach, emotional outreach. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get to hear our bonus segment, the second half of my conversation with Anand Jirad Haradas about the power and the lost art of persuasion. The whole Fox apparatus, as we were talking about, has been built in this period. And it's not occurred to anybody that, wow, that's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Like, what would it look like to build something like that for us? And please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting, please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.